Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Leela Prasad, uh, who is professor at Duke University, about a really, really interesting uh, brand new 2020 Cornell publication, The Audacious Raconteur, Sovereignty and Storytelling in Colonial India. I love sovereignty. I love storytelling. I love this book. Uh, welcome to the program, Leela. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Raj. This is exciting. It is exciting indeed. So what is a raconteur and and, and what is this audacious raconteur about, about which you're your book was written. It's about a very special kind of storyteller. I use the word raconteur deliberately, as you may have read about. Um, it's about storytellers and raconteurs in colonial India, the high noon of colonialism, who took on empire in ways that uh, we didn't quite expect. We don't quite expect uh, Indians to have done that. So it's about how they... Um, they tackle the premises of colonialism. Oh, it's a it's a really really fascinating book uh, about the power of of storytelling. Um, well, I'll let you say more about it. Do you want to give us maybe some examples of of the figures you look at or, or the data you look at for the book? You know, Raj, I look at all kinds of things from things like abandoned uh, ancient graveyards to letters to memoirs. Uh, collections of folk tales, all sorts of, there was nothing that was excluded from these photographs, nothing that was really excluded from me as I uh, burrowed my way through archives and people's homes uh, over, you know, more than two decades of writing, the, of trying to write this book. I mean, of course, I did that sp- sporadically. And it all began with a chance encounter, a really chance encounter. And I can say a little bit more about the role of chance in making this book happen. Uh, was, you know, discovering a, a kind of, you know, a, quite a remarkable book in a Midwestern library, you know, when I was an MA student of English. And I found this book um, called Old Deccan Days. And it was a collection of folk tales made by a British, uh, a young British uh, um, woman who was the daughter of a very powerful, one of the most powerful governors of colonial India, Bartle Frere. And as I read through this, you know, uh, collection, literally standing in the uh, those kind of little frequented uh, hallways of the library, of that particular section of the library, I was kind of fascinated by what I was reading. These were amazing stories that were collected from uh, an unknown ayah of colonial India. And so that's where the journey kind of began. I got really interested in this material. Who is this woman who's telling these stories? Who? Why did she tell them? How are they recorded? How are they preserved? How are they, how are they retold and translated into English? And the life story, the brief life story given, um, you know, in the book, in the words of the ayah herself, so-called, uh, so-called, you know, in, assume you're assuming that are her actual words. Uh, I... Uh, um, I just, a whole universe of colonial India opened up. And from there, I just got completely fascinated by other kinds of storytellers. Who else is telling stories? How are they, you know, recorded? And so it 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 grew and grew, this project. So that's sort of how I got into this. And that's the, 
the kind of material I use for the book. I'm sorry, your question may have been. You, you actually, um, <laughs> what you answered is what I typically ask. Uh, uh, one of the first questions I ask is tell us about the genesis of the book, which you channeled uh, effectively. So, so, so unless you want to say more about the genesis of the book, which is what I typically start off with, well, we may want to talk about sort of the figures you look at or, or how right, the, the chapters. There, yeah, so there were others like uh, Mary, um, uh, you know, uh, Mary Frere and Anna Liberata de Souza. That's the name of the ayah. And, you know, as I read this material, I, I really wanted to know more about this woman. Of course, there, there was this incredible moment when I recognized that the picture in the book uh, was a childhood haunt. And I thought, oh, I have got to retrace some steps here and find out more about this woman. And then that's how I sort of got interested in that space of colonial India where stories were told and recorded. Um, by people, uh, A, who may have been alien to that culture, and also by Indians who are recording their own stories for whatever reason. So that's, uh, the, the figure of the audacious recounter is a very significant figure for me, who is a very different kind of figure from, um, say, the subaltern. You know, so in, in a way, the figure of the audacious recounter is, different from the figure of the sub subaltern because this is someone who uh, who revels in one's being within uh, within their own context um, stories practices proverbs the stuff of everyday life is belongs to the audacious recounter who has no problem showcasing displaying playing in that space and i just uh, absolutely love that that kind of very different turn from the whole subaltern understanding of, you know, resistance. So give us an example of this audacity, this very useful audacity of which you speak. It's, uh, oh, there's so many examples in the book. Let's take one. So there is this, one of the audacious recounters in the book is a guy called Ramaswamy Raju, who was a Madras-based barrister who goes to England, gets a Western education, an English education, and I mean, and and studies law, comes back, um, um, and and has been writing to make a living while he was in England. Uh, and then, you know, one would think, and initially when I read his uh, early plays, I thought, oh, he's just mimicking, and it's just, you know, it's. Um, but then I started reading his plays quite closely. What am I reading? He is taking on, you know, the museum, the museumization of India, the taking of spoils from India, um, and finding them refitted into museum context in the U.S. In the, in the well, of course, it also happens elsewhere um, in 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 England, and then he makes an entire spoof about this whole thing. So he is writing sitting there in London, writing these plays about things that the empire loved to do uh, and reversing this uh, through spoof and jabs and uh, the drama of wit. And I just found that absolutely audacious for him to be doing that. There are other examples also. Then let's take Anna, since we've talked about, I mentioned her briefly, uh, who, as she's telling her stories uh, and chatting with, Mary Frere doesn't mince words telling the governor's daughter that the, the, the promise of modernity that colonialism um, said it was going to deliver was actually an untruth because it, was, it wasn't able to either tell stories or even run an economy. And this was something that she um, 
didn't have a problem telling the governor's daughter. And I find those little instances are actually hugely significant for me because they tell you things that you might ordinarily miss um, about the encounter with colonialism from a very lay perspective. And um, these these moments of audacity, are they occurring uh, through the, the art of storytelling or are they occurring in between these artistic enterprises? Say more about that for those who haven't read the book. I think they occur all over. It's so my examples are four. I focused on four raconteurs, but I have to say, you know, going back to your earlier question about the genesis, I uh, of the book, I was reading, you know, over the 20, 25 years of the making of this book, thousands of letters, uh, all sorts of correspondence, archives of all kinds, uh, where there were many such raconteurs, uh, and the moments of audacity are then are all over the place are all over the place. So it's not lone instances. You know, you can either zoom in, you know, on lone uh, instances or look at an entire body of work and you find it all over the place. Uh, it's uh, sometimes easy to miss because they also fit into the paradigm of, you know, well, trying to be like the white master, you know, or the white employer. And it's easy to miss these moments of rebuttal and resistance and play. Uh, if they're only read through those lens of uh, mimicry. How was the rebuttal resistance play? How was it met? Oh, that's a great question. It was met in all kinds of ways. As some of the reviews of uh, uh, old Deccan Day shows, some people absolutely loved the, you know, the portrait of this ayah who we never read about in the British press. Others just um, trashed the book and said, you know, well, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it tells the story of an uh, adult-brained old woman. You know, I mean, I, I guess the book wasn't trashed. That particular book wasn't trashed as much as, you know, it got mixed reviews. Um, I, the British press, in the case of Venkat Swami, M.N. Venkat Swami, who was a Medara or a so-called untouchable back then, you know, um, writer, uh, he self-published all his books included audaciously the critiques of his book from uh, books from earlier editions. And many of these critiques uh, completely were scathing as far as his book, but that didn't uh, deter him from republishing the very same material and doing more of the same. Um, so it, it fueled him actually. Yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. So I, you know, it, it goes all uh, the, the entire arc of responses. So, um, where does this where does this sort of study fit sort of in in in, in terms of subfields or Hindu studies or or um, yeah I'm not sure how to ask this question without uh, leading it but where where do you see this fitting into the conversation of this of of how we study Hinduism? Actually, a good question. You know, at one level, if you you know if you if you here's here's how I look at it. You know. Uh, the book is full of instances of Hindu ritual, mythology. Ramaswamy Raju, you know, writes a colonial era Purana, for so to speak. Uh, Venkat Swami talks about all the uh, the practices within his family, within the Medara community. Um, there are stories of worship, stories of gods and goddesses. So at an obvious conventional level, you get as much Hinduism as you want. You also get Hinduism in the context with you know, in the in, in context, in the lived context of engagement with other 
religious traditions such as Anna's story. You know, she's, she was a Cohen Catholic, um, deeply devout woman, but who was raised to um, interact with other religious traditions, a lot of many Hindu practices and stories and didn't have a problem. There was no sense of clash there. So the book is, has religion stamped all over it. But there's another way in which I, I like to draw attention to the idea of religion itself more broadly. Sometimes the pursuit of religion as an object often misses religion itself. Um, so I'd like the book to be looked at for, you know, for things like self-worth, self-restoration, self-assertion, acknowledgement, creativity, the things that are part or universally part of any religious imaginary. So there's also the narrow sense in which one can come to religion as a specific thing, you know, and Hinduism as a specific thing marked by certain acts and ideas and concepts, but also this broader idea of, well, what about acknowledgement? What about the ethics of being human? That is the core of any religious tradition anywhere at any time. It, it you know, the, the broader question. Yes, and more, and we have all sorts of uh, studies on this podcast uh, that's called, you know, uh, New Books in Hindu Studies, but certainly many of the works uh, pertain uh, more broadly to Indian culture, Indian history in some way. That's definitely there. You get a really textured look into colonial India. Um, and and there's something, I, I think, uh, I think I'm hearing you say it as well, but there's something of uh, an element of a personal journey in this book of, of sort of when you talk about power and reclaiming power and asserting yourself. There's, there's sort of, uh, it's not overt, but but it's it's sort of woven into this book, this 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 narrative of of for lack of a better term, reclaiming one's power or asserting one's identity or 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 this um this this uh, uh this freedom fight, you know, through the power of storytelling. It's that's it's so interesting to me actually. It's operating on a number of levels, I feel. Yeah, you know, uh you're right to pick up on that. I guess, you know, uh, in in comparison to anything else I have written, this book was a peculiarly personal journey, you know, a particular kind of personal journey because of the long arc of time which it was written so so much happened in my own life um, that was wrapped around in the in, in the making of this book you know there were my daughters arrived into my life my lost my parents the interlocutors that i worked with some of them died there were dead ends there were um failures there were incredible surprising moments of connection with people and i began to think very hard about you know well this is interesting because this is really so much part of a research process, you know, and nowhere else and nothing else that I've written so far have I had to acknowledge and confront that the research process is actually a very complicated thing. You know, it's chance and serendipity, luck, um, involvement with lay individuals. So that personal journey is at one level very deeply part of the, the making of this book. And it taught me a lot about how we think about history, how we think about religion, how we think about one's involvement with the subject that we write about. So that level. But there's also something else that you allude to, which I'm, I think uh, you're asking, which is, you know, the, the power of storytelling um, itself, which I, uh, it's a really good question, Raj, you know, which, which I had to think a lot about as I was writing, because you know, frankly, the, the writing, actual writing of this book, which happened in just a short span of four or five months, despite the fact that the research took so long, 
like stories in the Mahabharata of really long pregnancies, but much short birthing. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, was exhilarating. And, and the exhilaration came from the sheer power of these human stories that I was reading. They were, I mean, look at Anna's uh, story and Ramaswami Raju's wit and uh, Venkat Swami's um, hitting back at caste structures and Natisha Shastri taking on the whole idea of being a native scholar, but writing a novel in which he gets justice, you know, this just gave me immense inspiration every day, every day. It was a new discovery. It was a new thrill and made me think about structures of domination and ways in which one survives and thrives against the tide. So personal. Oh, yeah, deeply so. And uh, something about the artistic thrust, you know, uh, uh, being sort of impervious to 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 um, colonization, you know, that there's, you know, but it, when you speak, it's 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 very interesting for me because when one reads this book, I typically read things on a number of levels, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I I, I enjoy people. I, as I've said ten thousand times, I don't know how I'm a textual scholar, but the book reads it. it it's a scholarly work. Uh, but to me, it reads as a scholarly work by an individual who's lived a life and is and is cognizant of the life they've lived. And that that process whereby you research, like your 25-year process, you may not have had enough life experience to bring together so clearly the life experience of these storytellers without having taken, quote unquote, so long to actually get down to writing, if that makes sense. Yeah, just say a little more about that. I'm very interested in this thread. Well, you see, like you are, you are looking at the data, right, of these these vignettes, of these stories, of these figures, of these encounters, and you are making sense of them. Mm-hmm. You are there's a certain element of EQ or or empathy required to make sense of that person's story mm-hmm. as more than data, as yeah. more than something. So a lived narrative, a life story. And the more we live, the more we encounter others, the more capable we are of making sense of life stories. And so it's probably the case that you needed 25 years of life experience to make sense of these people's lives is what I'm saying, essentially. Yeah, that that that's really interesting, Raj, you know, and and perhaps you're right about that. You know, sometimes you just have to simmer or gestate in a project uh, long enough that it it begins to keep pace with your life and you begin to keep pace with the characters in that project so that the gaps between what one writes and reads and what the one one's life experiences gets um, is a gap that one can see uh, and occupy. So that's yeah. Go ahead. You were about to say something. No, no, no. It's much more. It's much more manifest, I think, with authors of of, of, of fiction or, or narrative proper, where you know there's a certain amount of of reference to the human experience or personal experience you, you one needs to have or be cognizant of to write a character or to understand a character. But in this case, you're researching people, like lived people and their impacts in a different time and space, but you're, 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 the, the power whereby you illumine that is your understanding of life and the human condition and sort of how one may function in those spaces or what one may be feeling when or thinking when they're being uh, uh, so audacious. You know, there's, there's, there's that element to it that I think it's, I think that element is actually crucial to all of the humanities, but particularly in a project like yours where you're bringing to life the sass of these colonial figures, um, that, that piece is obviously indispensable, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, speaking of, you know, there were lots of times 
particularly with Anna Liberata D'Souza, when I, I just didn't have material. I just had the one book, a manuscript uh, that the British Library has uh, and, and a bunch of letters, and but not and all coming from, as is typical of that period, a, a, an archive that is bursting with um, the colonizer, but is very short on the Indian side. Uh, and so, so then I asked myself, you know, how, how would I get to Anna? Because something tells me that there's another person here, you know, who exceeds and who's beyond the pages of this book. And so that's where I, I turned to sense reading, you know, surely we can ask that when she crosses this flooded river with uh, Mary Frere, did she remember the son who had drowned? Or should she, would she not have thought about the boy she so doted on who died? Um, uh, it was not so much about the young white lady crossing the river as much as to me it became a way of intuiting Anna's presence. And I'm sure there are problems here with this kind of reading. And I'm fine with that, you know, but uh, intuition as a way of, you know, as an interpreter, as, as an interpretive method became quite important to me and to trust that and to be okay with making errors. So you can read this differently. You hear the story and you use your intuitions, but here are mine. This is, this is so crucial. I mean, the human dimension is crucial, right? I mean, it seems like a truism or, or obvious, but uh, all too often in the humanities, we sort of gloss over the human experience for the sake of the objective data. But the, the, the human experience is, 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 is innately subjective. But it doesn't mean that it's non-existent, right? Part of what it means to understand a human subject or a human relationship partner is the power to empathize and imagine yourself able to feel or understand their perspective. And it's not such that that's entirely a, a hallucination on your behalf. <laughs> right, right. There is such a thing as empathy. There is such a thing of uh, suspecting or sensing how someone feels. Obviously, it's not infallible by any stretch of the imagination. but. Um, you, and to and to and to uh, admit a margin of error there, you know. So, for instance, you know, I mean, I, I I'm making certain leaps of interpretation. I can't remember specific examples, but they're all over. Where I, but I think this is it. I think that it, uh, it's that, and uh, and that error space is also part of interpretation. It's not infallible, and it just can't be so. Uh, and this question of subjectivity. I mean, I I really I think took my cues from Venkat Swami, who writes in this entire scientific, you know, in the midst of this scientific enterprise, uses photo photographic technology to invert the whole gaze and to play with the scientific photograph to make the most subjective statements he can ever make about a technology that colonialism thought was its arch friend. Um, and he turns that around and I thought, well, you know, um, Sure, there's something going on here, you know. I mean, the objectivity of science, the objectivity of history uh, is, is flattened completely by the end of the day for me. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. Um, what, uh, I don't know how to ask this, what, um, what's your greatest sort of takeaway or shift or what's, what's sort of your, what's the most impactful part of having birthed this book for you? What stands out to you? I don't know how to, um, I think at the, at the, at the very uh, foremost is the idea of the unsubjugable person. You know, that there is, you know, uh, anglophonic terms, as I say, and technologies, um, camouflage, camouflage of kind of a mastery over 
uh, Indian ways of knowing, being, remembering, and all of that. And this takes me to the idea of sovereignty in a way that uh, I think is a key takeaway, I hope, from the book. I, I hope, at least for me, it is, you know, which is, you know, there is um, an idea of sovereignty that is quite apart from political sovereignty, but actually tempers the idea of political sovereignty because here is a sovereign domain that just can never be taken. It can be, things can happen on it, things, you know, you can find, but it belongs to you. And it will, and your uh, accountability from that sovereignty is very symbiotic, you know, it, it's, um, so this idea of sovereignty as, um, you know, whose DNA is in creativity is the most important thing. And once you start seeing Anna's and Venkatswami's and Natisha Shastri as sovereigns within this territory of art, culture, then the idea of political sovereignty can never be the same. Um, so that's sort of the most important thing. And, uh, and we've already talked about the, the figure of the audacious record who's different from the figure of the subaltern. And that's the second um, thing for me. And the third, we've, you know, is, I guess, you know, if objectivity, modernity, scientific enterprise, the wonderful native scholar were bastions of colonialism, were really the mastheads of colonialism, then, oh my God, those are really horrendously hollow. Um, <laughs> when you talk about sovereignty, it, it, to me, it's, it registers in my mind as the sovereignty of the human spirit, right? Well, we can be fooled at times into thinking we belong to someone else or something else, but really there's an innate dignity and sovereignty there that can be reclaimed and accessed at any point, irrespective of the circumstance. Uh, and, and, and I think that I, I would tend to agree that it, it's, um, it, it, it powers and is powered by the, the, the creative process, right? Right, right. So that's the key thing there. The, the key thing is that, you know, there is a sovereignty of the spirit, yes, but it's also what these individuals as, as people, as, in, as, as writers and stylist, uh, raconteurs and makers of things uh, do with that spirit. You know, the, it's the creative play. Uh, and, and for that, all kinds of tools are available. Yeah, sure, use English, you know, um, sh sure, mingle English, uh, languages, you know, the, the, the language as well as cultural practices uh, mix them up completely with Indian things and you get a whole new idiom. Uh, but if you stop short and just, just look at the fact that, oh, they're writing only in M.N. Venkat Swami, for instance, only wrote in English, but his books were so deeply multilingual, you know, despite the criticism he got for it, you know, he, he kept up with that practice. He kept that practice going. But it tells me something about, you know, his... Uh, his spirit, but also his 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 creative power, and um, yeah, that to me is actually um, also political. Creative power. Yeah, yeah, you know. Otherwise, you have you know. I I like the idea that there is you know there is a creative power has its political edges. That's fascinating. What? Um... Outside of this project, what do you normally work on? What are some of your other projects, either current or future? On what are you currently researching? I'm doing something completely different from this, but I guess you know there is a there's a commonality. It's a still about power and creativity. And I'm uh, for the last few years, I've been teaching in the federal prison in the U.S. Uh, an all male prison down here in Butner. I teach uh, courses on Gandhi, and uh, over the years that I've been doing this, I uh, um, I've been kind of really amazed by um, 
the creative power within the prison, within um, individuals who are incarcerated, uh, their ability to engage Gandhi and to make something of that, to, in, to imagine a new kind of Gandhi for themselves. So the, the next book I'm working on is called Being Human at the Margin. Um, or margins, depends on where I go with this. And it also looks at, you know, ex-prisoners who have been, who had studied Gandhi while they were in prison in the state of Maharashtra in India. So it's a book based on prison experiences. That's uh, fascinating. It's fascinating. Is there anything else you would like for us to touch on in, um, with this current book? Anything else you wanted to say about it? Not really. You've asked me amazing questions and it's got me thinking a little bit more. But uh, well, I've, I, I, I have the easy job. I hope it will be read. I hope it will be read. I hope it will be um, read. That's it. <laughs> uh, 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 who might enjoy reading it, do you think? I don't know. I mean, historians, anthropologists, religious studies, scholars, maybe. Uh, um, you know, interestingly, the people who got involved in the helping me make this book, you know, uh, I'll, you know, people with lay interest in history, you know, someone I may have run into in Nagpur or Hyderabad or just they too, sort of a general public is also interested in it, had shown interest in the in the project while it was happening. So I'm I'm really hoping that it reaches them. The families of these four raconteurs, except for Anna, who I could never really trace, are are into the book and that matters an awful lot to me. That's beautiful. Now one huge boon in terms of people reading the book is that they don't have to purchase it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That is like the biggest piece of this. <laughs> exactly. So this is available for download. We'll put the link in the podcast uh, description, uh, but you all can download a copy after you finish listening to this podcast and dive into this wonderful uh, storied world of colonial India. It's been uh, great having you on the podcast today. Thank you, Raj. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. And so for those of you listening, uh, keep listening, stay safe. Keep reading, keep storytelling, and uh, keep contemplating uh, your own power, agency, and sovereignty (laughs) as implicated in the stories you tell. Take care.